Welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Toops. Uh, you're welcome to call us, as usual. Listeners are always welcome to call uh, Left Out at uh, 412-268-9728, 268-WRCT, or to send mail to bob at leftout.info during the show, and we'll be monitoring electronic mail as well. Usual announcement we have is that uh, you can listen to Democracy Now! every weekday at 8 a.m. on WRCT, this station. And um, also on our website, you can find a link to the redcross.org if you're um, to donate to um, uh, helping the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and that will be one of our topics for today. Right. So as, uh, as, as the inescapable fact of the news from the last over the last week is the uh, the horrible disaster in New Orleans. And uh, many of us throughout the country have been and throughout the world have been horrified by the uh, the spectacle of what happened in the wake of the hurricane and uh, which led to an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. Um, this is all unfolding. You all know. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners are up to date on on what's been what's going on. Uh, the recovery continues. They've repaired the levees. They're or you know on a temporary basis. They're beginning to pump water out. They're recovering. Would they expect as many as I've heard the mayor quoted as saying? Is they're expecting as many as ten thousand bodies? Which uh, let's hope that that's uh, an exaggeration. But I think it's safe to assume it's going to be a very large number. It's uh it. Uh, so the the uh, the most horrifying thing last week that many were talking about, of course, was the apparent indifference and the uh, neglect and incompetence with which the whole disaster was organized was was handled. And there's a lot going on, a lot of uh, finger pointing going on, and trying to understand how this could come about. And as we've seen um, uh, immediately, the uh, Republican right wing. Um, Noise Machine has immediately uh, kicked into action and has started uh, their campaign to leave Bush blameless. And the situation is, uh, uh, I have a number of comments on the situation, one is which is uh, maybe helpful for many of our listeners to know. I mean, I think it's fair to say that from where we stand right now, it certainly looks like there's probably blame to go around in various directions as to why uh, why, uh, why things degenerated so badly and why there was so mm-hmm. little provision for, for, for taking care of the poorest and least able to people, people least able to take care of themselves. But they're also so it's it's difficult to say with with certainty uh, how this will all shake out. So I wouldn't want to predict that. Um, but there are some things which one can say with certainty, and I'm motivated in part by the uh, the uh, the right wing uh, spin machine revving up to uh, to spout all sorts of nonsense. In particular, earlier this week or last week, at the end of last week. The um, the uh, no doubt Carl Rove planted the story in the Washington Post in a Newsweek was retracted by the Washington Post has not to my knowledge as of today been retracted by Newsweek claiming that the governor was uh, was uh, never declared a state of emergency uh, until and last Saturday allowed to and therefore of course you know George Bush and uh, the uh, and the all of the federal government was simply waiting anxiously for that phone call before they could do anything this is I would like just to point out I think. Many of you know this, but we have links to the appropriate documents on the left out webpage, and you may, our listeners may find this useful when uh, combating the the nonsense. In particular, on August 26th, the governor declared a state of emergency, and on August 28th, the, uh, the, the Bush, uh, George Bush signed a declaration, a statement on federal emergency to assistance, uh, federal emergency assistance for Louisiana, which was on uh, August. Um, Oh, beginning August 26th, excuse me, I said 28th, beginning August 26th, uh, 2005. That would have been the Thursday before the landfall of the hurricane. So, and this statement, and I'll read it to you in this link on the left out webpage, I simply want to point out that, and I'll quote this, the president's action authorizes the Department of Homeland Security Federal Emergency Management Agency to coordinate all disaster relief efforts which have the purpose of alleviating the hardship and suffering caused by the emergency on the local population and to provide appropriate assistance for the required emergency measures authorized under St- Title V of the Stafford Act to save lives, protect property, and public health and safety, or to lessen or avert the threat of a catastrophe in the parishes of, and lists all of the parishes in South Louisiana that were affected 
affected by the by the by the catastrophe. So my point here is just to inter- inject a little bit of reality into the discussion. The reality is that the president's by the president's own signature on August the 26th at the request of the governor of Louisiana, FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security were placed in charge of coordinating all disaster release relief efforts in South Louisiana and the named parishes, but they're all the ones that you would expect and and uh, I presume, although I don't have it linked in the website, there was a similar declaration was made for the state of Mississippi, no doubt at the request of the governor there as well, and no doubt Alabama as well. But I'm I'm focusing my attention here yeah. in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans in particular. So when someone tells you that, well, you know, the responsibility was the mayor's, the responsibility was the governor's, I'm sorry, but they, they as far as the declaration of emergency is concerned, they did exactly the right thing, and the authority was placed with FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security. This means in particular that the inaction, the absolute inaction at having any kind of an evacuation plan for those who could not evacuate themselves. I mean, the Republican attitude about this seems to be, well, uh, and I've seen this said repeatedly, that all those people, tens of thousands of people, chose not to leave New Orleans. You know, I mean, after all, I mean, Danny, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, why didn't they just call their drivers and, and have yeah, them taken, right. taken to a hotel? I mean, what is the problem with these people, right? What What, what is wrong with them? You know, so they, it's their own fault, of course. So that was a, the first thing is we were blaming the victims. That's a typical, typical Republican strategy. Second thing, uh, now this uh, moves me into another topic I, I, I have uh, in mind, which is the similarity of the behavior of the Bush administration in this disaster to a similarity of its behavior with the, uh, the attacks, the, uh, the crimes on September 11, 2001, in which Bush, of course, was initially indifferent. And here it took three days before Bush did anything. He was busy doing his uh, fundraisers in San Diego and strumming his guitar with a country music singer in San Diego and doing a little flyby, tipping the wing of Air Force One so he could check out what was going on. Um, that was through Wednesday. It wasn't until Thursday that he did it, that he did. Well, I'm sorry to say a damn thing. Didn't do anything. And then, uh, and then at that point, in his usual inept manner, revealing his incompetence and indifference, was joking about it. One of his first speeches was, uh, chastising people not to commit insurance fraud. And it reminded me very strongly of when we attacked Iraq, that you'll recall on the night that we attacked or that the attacks began, one of Bush's most important points was to admonish the innocent civilians in, in Iraq not to destroy the oil fields. You see, because the most important thing, of course, was protecting the property and the corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And the same was true with the insurance yeah. companies. This is what is uppermost, other, uppermost in right. his mind. While, meanwhile, this uh, uh, un- outrageous humanitarian catastrophe is taking place in New Orleans. People are dying. I mean, it, you know, the only thing one can analogize to is something like Rwanda. Or, you know, the Liberia or the Ivory Coast or something where there's uh, these kinds of horrific catastrophes happen all the time. Why? Because of the corruption and incompetence of their governments, amongst other reasons. Yeah. The indifference of people in charge to the plight of the average person. And so what we saw here on display was a was a grotesque display. Except this time the, U- the U.S. population got to see it because they were glued to their TV sets. It was for on television. Days. But it was a grotesque display of the Republican future. <clears throat> I mean, this was a grotesque display of the kind of world world in which uh, yeah. in which the Republicans would like us to to live of course uh, in typical Republican fashion and right-wing fashion we also noticed immediately the American Family Association wasted no time whatsoever as a matter uh, the, at the toward the end of last week in which we had this statement from the so-called Reverend Bill Shanks who is a new covenant uh, pastor of the New Covenant Fellowship in New Orleans uh, a man of the cloth a, a pious Christian um, who is a moral leader who will be an example to all of us. Uh, his comment about this is that, uh, as you may expect, you may recall with the 9-11 attacks, making another parallel, you'll recall at that time that Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell were jokingly blaming it on uh, ACLU members and uh, abortionists, as they call it, and, of course, homosexuals who were responsible for the 9-11 attacks because, after all, it was the God was giving us what we deserve. Same thing happens here with the Reverend Bill Shanks, who whose comment on it at the end of last week. Now, this is a man of the cloth. This is a Christian man. This is a, uh, a religious and moral leader who's saying, New Orleans is now abortion-free. New Orleans is now Mardi Gras-free. New Orleans is now free of Southern decadence and the sodomites, the witchcraft workers, false religion. It's free of all those things now, Shanks says. God simply, I believe in his mercy, purged all that stuff out of here, and now we're going to start over again. 
I think no further comment yeah. is necessary on this. I uh, want to just uh, this is the this is the kind of government that Rick Santorum would like to bring you. This is the government that your that the Republicans are bringing you. Is this the United States that uh, that we that we or any any of us would like to live in? I just want to make a comment about one of the <clears throat> interesting things that I uh, I saw was uh, an exchange with um, where Russert was on to uh, Tim Russert on Meet the Press. Um, I mean, actually got mad at. Uh, at uh, Chertoff, Michael Chertoff, I think the head of Homeland Security, who was interviewing him. The crony. Yeah, and um, he just said, who's going to resign? Are you going to resign? Is the first thing he said to the guy. Uh, because there's been no accountability ever in this administration. So then he went on from there saying, uh, just scoffing at ridiculous. Chertoff went on to say it was just a, an unpredictable weirdness that the levee broke right after the hurricane. Two things happened. It was unpredictable. Well, that was complete nonsense. It was predicted in National Geographic. It was predicted by Scientific American in articles in those mainstream publications. It was uh, now by, with Bill Moyers. I mean, this is, this was known by geologists and, and, uh, the Army Corps for, the FEMA wrote a report that this, it, it's just ridiculous. No, there but was he was a FEMA, saying this there was a FEMA exercise stuff. just last year and, and on this. And in 2002, the New Orleans Times-Picayune had a five-part series in which they predicted precisely what took place. If you look in the article on www.nola.com, which is a Times-Picayune website, NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana.com, uh, they have a five-part article in there in which they actually, they predict exactly what happened, right down to the fact that the 7th Street, 17th Street Canal levee would burst, that the London Street levee would burst. They didn't predict that the Industrial Canal levee would burst, but okay, uh, two out of three. Yeah. They knew, they knew exactly so what was going on. That's another example of this, this, this uh, spin that's being put on it. And the, the, amazing, the amazing thing to me was that Russert didn't fall for it. He just bowled right through this nonsense. This is highly unusual. Um, which and is very I have unusual to say, for him to, yeah. I have to say I'm suspicious right away. But it wouldn't be the first time. You'll recall Ted Kennedy was demanding Rumsfeld's resignation uh, just a, a couple of months ago. Of course, that isn't uh, that isn't going to uh, isn't going to go anywhere because you see, this is the politics of personal responsibility. The politics of personal responsibility consists of making the victims responsible for what happens to them, and to uh, gut any idea of government services, even in the case of a disastrous emergency. And this is another item you can look at in the uh, Left Out webpage uh, we have um, I, that I would like to discuss also is the curious logic of what is going to unfold now. Um, the Bush administration has been systematically dismantling FEMA since it uh, took office. They have a grudge against FEMA. And then they brought and they've in particular, they've installed this buffoon uh, who to be the head to, to be the head of FEMA, who uh, was displaying uh, his incompetence uh, on television uh, at every possible moment. Uh, all he was concerned about was getting in front of the cameras. There was a contest between him and Chertoff, who could have more press conferences, and spouting nonsense, and didn't even know. Like he was told on television that people were trapped in the convention center and that there was an enormous humanitarian catastrophe taking place there. And, you know, he, it, it's un, unbelievable incompetence. And so this guy is a crony. So you put in a crony. He was a political crony. That's the only reason you put in there. He has no qualifications whatsoever. He was fired from his last job as the head of the uh, International Arabian Horse Association. He had the, he had the job of, of uh, managing the judges for horse competitions. Okay. And anyway, so the, the, the algorithm that what is going on here, and we'll see it played out very well, is they uh, gut government services, cutting their budgets, undermine their missions, put in incompetent cronies to run them, like FEMA, for example. Then watch as it completely and totally fails in its mission. And then the logic will be that we'll use this as further justification as to why we should cut the government, government services, because you see, obviously, they don't work, even in a case of emergency. And you watch how this will play out. This is absolutely... This is a guaranteed that the that the right wing spin machine will be casting this as all the reasons why you should never rely on re rely on your government, um, when in fact the logic of this is quite the opposite. So uh, uh, Paul Krugman this week, and we have links to two last week, excuse me, had two successive op ed pieces uh, commenting on this particular thing on the failures of leadership and also the contempt that the Bush administration has for the government as being uh, you know the prime culprits here. Uh, in in the in this disaster, and I think this is uh, perfectly clear. And I urge you to have a look at the um, at the uh, at the Left Out website for links to those articles, if you haven't seen them already. 
And meanwhile, above all, so we just wanted to introduce a, a little bit of reality here. FEMA was responsible. George Bush himself made FEMA responsible. FEMA and the DHS in general did an I can't even, their words fail me. Uh, to say it's an appalling job is, is, is such an understatement. I, I don't even know what to do with it. I don't even know how to go further. They were so absolutely incompetent. And the responsibility lies with the Bush administration for these failures, amongst other failings that may perhaps be uncovered as time goes along. It's extremely clear what the facts of the situation for the responsibility are. And I urge you to, to, to uh, look at those, look at the, at the documents we have on the website and uh, and remember them when arguing about these points against the uh, spin that is coming uh, coming down now. Okay, we want to move on to another topic now. We have um, a guest on the line. This is changing. We're going to be switching gears quite a bit. Um, this is um, Thomas Lindsay, uh, who co-founded the organization called the Community Environmental Defense Fund. It's in central Pennsylvania. Uh, Tom, are you there? Yes, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Left Out. Yeah. So um, I could announce the phone number again, but I think we have a lot of stuff to talk about with Tom. So we're gonna we're gonna defer calls for maybe for a little while uh, for, for Tom to introduce himself Great. and explain where he's coming from. So uh, can you tell us a little about what uh, what your organization's been doing and, and uh, uh, what it's trying to do and what how it's trying to do it? Sure. Uh, it uh, may seem like switching gears, but uh, in reality, some of this stuff is connected. Uh, we talked about corporate interests, and uh, I think that's what some folks in rural communities in Pennsylvania are starting to deal with uh, frontally rather than uh, through a regulatory-type process, which is where we've been stuck for years. But uh, I'm Tom Lindsay. I'm an attorney and the executive director for a nonprofit organization called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. And we were founded uh, 10 years ago, and uh, we were founded to do... Uh, pretty much conventional regulatory type uh, organizing uh, within the conventional environmental sphere. And when I say that, I mean uh, communities uh, would come to us with problems uh, with incinerators or uh, landfills coming into their communities or uh, corporate hog uh, factory farms or land applied sludge or uh, any one of these thousands of single issues and projects that are forced on unwilling communities across Pennsylvania every day. And we would help them appeal permits, uh, challenge uh, regulations, uh, enforce regulations, and uh, essentially uh, assist them uh, to uh, have an attorney when legal counsel now costs between 250 and $400 an hour uh, for uh, ordinary average folks uh, to retain someone to do environmental law work. And for a number of years, that's the type of work that we did, and we were very successful. We won uh, cases in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Uh, overturned uh, permit appeals that uh, corporations would put in to put in incinerators and, and different projects. Uh, but at some point, uh, the work itself uh, seemed to need to take a different direction because, as everybody knows, it's worked within traditional uh, regulatory organizing, uh, knows that uh, when uh, you seek to regulate something, it's much different than simply saying no and keeping something out of the community. And uh, so when we do permit appeals and those types of things, essentially we're simply begging and pleading corporations to cause a little less harm uh, to a community that doesn't want a certain project to come in and transform it uh, into something different than what the community has intended. Can I just interrupt for one yeah. second here? One of the things, <clears throat> well, the two things that struck me when looking at some of your uh, material was the two most sort of egregious uh, uh, things that I noticed were the uh, the distribution of the, the the sludge from the municipal waste sludge, uh, and they, they they've they've got this idea that instead of putting that in a landfill and having to pay for that, they're going these corporations are going to dump it on farmland as fertilizer, uh, which turns out to be disastrous in many situations because the stuff is toxic, um, and this is apparently the kind of thing that they're foisting on on these communities. That was just one example. And the other example was the the industrial hog farms, which are immense. Uh, uh, factories for hogs, which create massive amounts of pollution and, and also drive all the other farmers out of business, um, uh, among other things. So these are the kind of things you'd think that a community, uh, with local community, would be able to say, no, I don't, we don't want this. In our, we want to have our own way of life. We don't want this, this junk uh, in our area. And uh, the statistics are frightening. I mean, 60, 65% of pork production is controlled by four corporations in the United States. Uh, over 70% of land-applied sludge 
for your listeners who don't know what sludge is, uh, it's everything that comes out of a centralized treatment plant, sewage treatment plant. Mm -hmm. And we used to dump it in the ocean. And then uh, we learned uh, that uh, when you dump things like that in the ocean, it, it creates a dead zone the size of Rhode Island off the coast. And so the same brain surgeons that gave us ocean dumping uh, within the Reagan administration uh, turned to land application of sludge, which means that 60% of all sludge uh, coming out of treatment plants at this point is applied to land where we grow our crops, uh, both for direct consumption as well as for livestock consumption. And on the other side, dealing with these corporate factory farms, uh, we've eliminated 300,000 uh, family farmers, once independent family farmers in the United States over the past 20 years, also eliminated 1,500 independent livestock family farmers in Pennsylvania over the past 15 years. And what we have in ag, at least, is what we call a corporatization of agriculture, a replacement of the independent family farmer-based unit uh, with a small handful of corporations who are now defining what farming looks like within individual communities. So when you look at the data, you know, which in the regulatory arena is, is a big deal, uh, you find all these facts about uh, sludge. You know, sludge can contain over 600,000 toxic contaminants. Uh, the Department of Environmental Protection tests for a grand total of 11 uh, before they allow it to be land applied. Uh, or in the factory farm uh, arena, the fact that the uh, corporatization of agriculture results in these factory farms, 5,000 to 10,000 head hog factory farms spread out across Pennsylvania, that uh, these are indeed bad things uh, that uh, communities have come to grips with. Unfortunately, they've run into the fact that the law actually legalizes uh, these two categories of harms. In other words, the legislature and the regulatory framework actually serve to force these facilities into unwilling communities that don't want them and essentially strip away any authority of those communities to say no to them. And so something extraordinary happened back in 1998-1999, uh, which was small communities in rural Pennsylvania, the most rural parts of Pennsylvania, and sometimes when I talk about this stuff, I say the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of places. But in reality, because rural Pennsylvania has been dumped on for years with everything from low-level radioactive uh, waste sites to landfills, to factory farms, to sludge, to incinerators, uh, everything that politically gets uh, sited far away from urban or suburban areas, that folks in these communities started asking some really tough questions about why the law itself disempowered them from being able to say no to keep something out of their community. Mm -hmm. And it was in those years that uh, communities in south-central Pennsylvania started adopting laws that banned agribusiness corporations from owning or controlling farms. Uh, was paralleling uh, movement out west where nine states have statewide laws on the books that outright prohibit agribusiness corporations from owning or controlling farms. That's a big shift to make from regulating behavior or, or regulating the adverse impacts from these facilities when they come in to essentially defining the types of actors that will be able to do business within their community. And so we think that was a sea shift that was taking place at that time within these rural communities. Today you have a dozen townships in five counties uh, who deny, prohibit, ban, uh, choose your verb, uh, agribusiness corporations from coming in to set up corporate factory farms. And that's here in, P in Pennsylvania? Yes, that's here in Pennsylvania, South Central and North Central, uh, five different counties, uh, about a dozen townships in those counties. But it's it's not just a matter of, of, of well, you and I talked on the phone a little bit today earlier, it's not just a matter of uh, uh, passing a law locally that prevents it. It's It's, you actually, to do this, you're actually going against state and federal laws. So it's, in a sense, it's it's almost a kind of a civil disobedience on the part of the, the local community. Yes, and that civil disobedience has uh, reached a, a midpoint in places like Claring County, an hour and a half north of uh, where you are, uh, in which township supervisors, these rural elected supervisors who are tasked with taking care of the roads, patching them in the summer and plowing them in the wintertime, have actually moved to a different point, which is to understand that uh, folks passing ordinances against factory farms or the 70 townships that have passed ordinances to ban sewage sludge corporations from doing business in their community, and once again frontally attacking corporations and the structure of corporate power at the local level, that two townships in Clarion County uh, in 2004 became the first municipal governments in the United States to pass local ordinances stripping corporations of constitutional rights. 
uh, many of your listeners may not know, but corporations uh, back at the turn of the century, 1886-1900, were actually recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court as having the constitutional rights of persons. So under the law, the Bill of Rights protections that protect you and I, in fact, the language of the Constitution that was driven in by folks that fought, bled, and died to drive that material into the Pennsylvania Constitution and into the U.S. Constitution, those protections are now accorded to corporations uh, who use them both as swords and shields, number one, to stop local communities from interfering with their commerce and production activities, but number two, as a sword, uh, to actually uh, walk in and sue uh, local governments to overturn uh, local laws that those local governments have adopted. And so with that understanding that we can't govern, you know, Pennsylvania Constitution says we are the source of all governing authority, people, and that nothing is beyond our purview to legislate about or to make law about, that in these cases the two townships in Clarion County have passed laws with the realization that uh, they can't govern their community or enforce these sludge ordinances that they put in place as long as corporations wield the constitutional authority to come in and knock down those ordinances. And so in a very strategic way, some of these townships have moved in a direction to begin to question and confront the very authority that corporations wield against communities to keep them from making decisions about the future of those townships. And to us, that's a huge, yeah. a huge transformation. So what, so what will happen with those laws? I mean, do, <clears throat> do you think they'll be will they be struck down in court? Or well, the the and I hesitate to use the word movement because you know we operate nationally and we now have fifty some of these democracy schools set up in which other people are attempting to replicate what's happening in Pennsylvania. Is that eventually we have to understand that if there is going to be a movement dealing with corporate power in this country and the understanding that there's a corporate few who in essence govern the many, which is incompatible with the founding values of this country, ostensibly the founding values of this country, that we have to find a way to build an army of people, build a movement of sorts, with the understanding that the courts and the legislatures are essentially going to be used by those corporate interests and those corporate few to come in to interfere with our building of a movement of people who are going to confront these issues. And so when a court comes in and knocks down an ordinance, which they haven't done yet with these ordinances, but we hope that they, they, they do eventually, that the court comes in to knock them down, that it's something that's expected by people. And eventually either people stop uh, relying or stop uh, complying with the decrees that are passed down by the court over these illegitimate laws, or they use that as energy and fuel for their organizing, and we begin to take this stuff into a thousand different communities across Pennsylvania. Because literally, you know, we talk about Katrina, we talk about all these other issues, but in the end, you know, we talk, but nothing happens. And for the past 40 years, activists in this country have been mostly relying on a regulatory model of organizing, challenging permits, uh, regulating and enforcing regulations, especially environmental regulations. But by every major environmental statistic, things are worse now than they've ever been in this country. And in fact, all we have to do is look back to the Iraq war to see how easy it was for this country to go to war, to see how easy it was for the corporate few to take this country to war. The fact is, is that the majority of us are governed by a few. And the legal structure of this country, the legal structure, is structured to disempower and, in fact, strip power away from localities or especially community majorities who are attempting to govern their communities and establish a sustainable vision for the next 20, 30, or 40 years. If that's reality, then we have to find a different way to do our organizing because otherwise we're just in the energy sink that's a downward spiral that eventually is going to result in, in us getting absolutely nothing done. So, um, for example, one one uh, a group that's kind of um, on the edge is Greenpeace, and they they do things like uh, drive a boat between a whale and a, and a harpoon gun. Uh, but you you told me earlier that that's not really that you consider that the old model. That's the old way of doing things. Well, I think in in some ways the old model is about accepting the structure of law that we have in this country, and instead looking for lucky breaks or nibbling around the edges. Um, in reality, I mean, just to be very practical, in uh, many townships, these township governments across the state, it doesn't matter who you elect to office. It doesn't matter whether you have progressive people in office. It doesn't matter if you have right-wing Republicans in office. 
It doesn't matter because the structure of law that's set up to favor production and commerce and corporate rights over community rights, it doesn't matter who you put into office because they can't make law that interferes with those issues. And that's, that's one of the biggest problems. In Pennsylvania, what's more exciting than the ordinances, uh, perhaps, although 100 communities out of 1,400 townships have begun passing ordinances confronting and challenging this authority of corporations over their communities, that two other communities this past year have begun the process of going home rule. And home rule is a process in Pennsylvania that's uh, codified in the Constitution, which allows communities to essentially shake loose from this power structure, which automatically subordinates community rights to corporate rights, and write their own local constitutions. And I think that's when, when something gets really exciting, is when we move from passing local laws to actually constitutionalizing those laws in local charters or local constitutions. Those folks are concentrated on doing three things with those constitutions. One, expanding people's rights. Uh, especially those civil and political rights that we hold uh, as inalienable and fundamental, as our Constitution declares. Uh, secondly, recognizing the rights of nature. I mean, in this country, we've never really had an environmental movement because movements drive rights into the Constitution. Nature is considered to be property. Mountains, rivers, ecosystems, they're property under the law. They have no rights. So a real environmental movement would look like driving rights into the Constitution or into fundamental frameworks of governance. So that's the rights of nature piece. And third, it's about stripping away corporate rights. These constitutional rights that were driven in to protect people are now used to protect uh, aggregations of property and wealth within the corporate form because corporations are now considered to be persons. So this is about writing the balance. It's about understanding that uh, at the very beginning, even back to the, to the constitutional ratification, that 80% that of the people weren't people at that time. In other words, the 20% the of white males with property who wrote the Constitution wrote it to do certain things. And that Constitution places uh, the rights of people and nature, which isn't even mentioned in the Constitution, in a subordinate position to the rights of property and commerce and trade. Uh, we were talking on the phone earlier about NAFTA and GATT and these international trade agreements. They are actually our commerce clause in the Constitution writ large. The commerce clause in the Constitution was the first free trade agreement. Uh, Between states. It Between limited states. the ability of states and local governments to make the rules for commerce and production and subjected them instead to Congress. We perfected the Commerce Clause here. We perfected the free trade zones here. Once we perfected them here, we exported them out into these international trade agreements. It is time to start examining all the sacred cows that brought us to this point. Instead of pretending that we can just put different people in office and the result will be different, we have to understand that we're governed by the structure of law that actually subordinates the rights of communities to the rights of corporations. And that's when a real movement starts. Because the abolitionists didn't ask for a slavery protection agency. The American revolutionaries didn't ask for a more socially responsible king. It, starts, it means starting to discard all this conventional, activist, progressive junk that we've been surrounded with for so long and giving birth to a movement that finally doesn't ask, what can we get, but what do we want? Because the earth needs it, the planet needs it, we need it, our communities need it, and it's time to move in that direction. In a smaller step, um, is one of the one of the pieces of uh, sort of brainwashing that we've been subjected to is and that most people seem to believe is a sort of the magic of the market that the market is 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 driven by some sort of magical automatically optimal process that will solve all of our problems thomas frank one of our previous guests on the show wrote a book um called one market under god which sort of examines this, this giant myth of the market um and the, in which thing, he, he mentions that uh, people have come to regard the market as a force of nature, something yeah. equivalent to uh, the law the of gravity. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, but the problem with it is that if you look at what's happened and look at what's, where things are going, as you mentioned with the environment being deteriorating, uh, and just one example I mentioned before was the, the fact that the fisheries are being destroyed. I mean, this is what corporate, uh, the market is doing. They, they, it's a suicide. They're, they're killing themselves as well as all the communities that, that, are, that were depending on the fish. Uh, it, it's not. You can't depend on it. It's 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 
giving us the wrong answer. Um, and things are going to get more and more dire unless something is done to reverse this. Well, uh, my favorite quote is Wayne Andreas, who is CEO of ADM, uh, once said that the only place that the free market exists is in the speeches of politicians. <laughs> and uh, you true, know, Truer the, words never spoken. The, the folks in, in the economics field talk about this invisible hand, mm -hmm. the invisible hand that guides the market. Well, that's just crap. And, if I, uh, and also, if I hear the words one more time out of somebody's mouth, either Bush's or others, uh, that... Uh, uh, the this is a country of laws, not of men. I think I'm going to upchuck uh, because where do folks think laws come from, and how do they think we're governed? We're governed by a clique. Uh, the Fortune 500 companies have 1,200 directors cumulatively that actually make decisions about what those Fortune 500 companies do. It's about a corporate class, and it's about how we've been colonized by the corporate class to think that that class is going to make the right decisions for all of us or that there's some kind of a visible hand separate and apart from democratic decision-making that will make the right decisions over the votes of the majorities of people. And I think that's just garbage. Well, more so that it's in in inevitable and unavoidable because it's uh, something akin to a law of nature. Yeah, and the corporate factory farm situation is a perfect example. We have four corporations controlling 65% of pork production in this country. How is that better than having hundreds of thousands of independent family farmers supporting mm -hmm. rural communities doing business out there? How is that better? And, you know, the words always come back, well, it's more efficient. Well, who said efficient is right? I mean, and, and who uh, admitted that, that uh, the larger operations are more efficient somehow because they're externalizing their costs on the rural community? Yeah, that's right. an interesting Right, and point. not counting the cost of the, 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 the damage they're doing. Um, but there's a sort of a moment here in time when, when we... Um, You've got still got a rural, you still have a rural community that can still protest. If, if enough time passes, that'll be wiped out and, and already replaced by the corporate way of doing things, and, and it's just decimating those communities. Um, if you want to give us a call, uh, we're talking to Thomas Lindsay um, about. Well, you heard what we were talking about, all kinds of things, um, and uh, the environmental movement. The number is four one two six two one nine seven two eight. Uh, give us a call if you have a brief question or comment about um, what we're talking about. Or you can send electronic mail to Bob at leftout.info. Um, let's see, what else uh, What else are we, uh, are we talking about here? Are there, um, are, are you working on other, other issues? Uh, I mean, you've had some success with um, the laws in these local communities. Uh, you mentioned there are schools, this democracy school. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure. We uh, started getting so many phone calls and uh, uh, emails from folks in other parts of the country that wanted to replicate the type of organizing model that was happening in Pennsylvania. And uh, bit by bit over the past two and a half years, we started out at Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, where the first democracy school was held. Uh, and it was with five people flying in from across the country, Oregon, Washington, different places that uh, those schools have been replicated now in 54. Uh, 54 schools have been taught over the past two years in 15 permanent locations that teach between four and six schools a year. And essentially the schools are about uncolonizing people's brains uh, in the way that they think about the Constitution and law and uh, this concept that a corporate few governs the majority in this country and how we can turn that around. The only way to turn it around is at the grassroots level, issue by issue, community by community, who take on this otherwise camouflaged uh, way and process in which they're governed uh, and uh, begin to drive something different in which they confront this power structure as being incompatible with, with these founding ideals. And uh, we've done trainers. We have uh, seven certified lecturers that travel the country now. Uh, there'll be uh, 60 to 70 schools held next year across the country in places as far afield as Anchorage, Alaska, to uh, Seattle, Washington, to Austin, Texas, to Washington, D.C., to uh, Boston College, uh, all across the country with classes of between 15 and 20 individuals coming together because they're at the end of their rope, uh, because they've been organizers for a long time, and they've been banging their heads up against the, the regulatory system over and over and over again, a system that some think w was put there on purpose uh, just to do that uh, rather than to offer a remedy but to keep activists uh, active and Distracted. There's a quote that rings in my head that uh, the only thing that environmental regulations regulate is environmentalists because it makes us predictable. 
Um, <laughs> so you, um, is there going to be a school here locally in, in Pittsburgh or in, in the area? Uh, where would we go if you wanted to go to school? There's one in Columbus, Ohio, coming up in January. And uh, in November, there's another one at Wilson College in Chambersburg. Those are probably the two closest ones. And the information on that is at your website, which is uh, celdf.org, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, and there's also a link uh, to a webpage uh, called constitution411.org, uh, which lists all the schools uh, that will be opening next year. There's six schools opening in New York State as well. Uh, over the course of next year, so you start. Are you so you're really starting to get some publicity for this whole movement? I mean, I had never heard of you until I watched a, a speech you gave on on um, on free speech, free speech G- network, free speech free TV. TV yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the thing called Bioneers, which I guess is a big conference of environmentalists. Um, yeah, the conference brings together about uh, thirty five hundred uh, to four thousand people each year, and uh, groups of folks that are trying to figure out what to do, uh, and uh, who have run into uh, a uh, wall in doing a conventional organizing as the world has gotten worse and as this country has gotten worse uh, to figure out things to do to really change it around. You know, we had a small, I was thinking while you were commenting earlier that we had an example of this kind of uh, corporate trumping uh, individual interest here uh, with a gambling, I'm sure you know about it, with the gambling law, the, uh, Absolutely. Uh, where, they, where it was decided maybe you want to amplify on this. Uh, at least in the first version of the law that passed, it was decided that local zoning ordinances wouldn't apply to locating, uh, you know, these slot barns that they're planning to put around the state. Absolutely. There was a, a furor over that. There was a lawsuit that eventually stripped uh, that provision out. Now they're talking about putting it back in in the legislature. But, uh, I mean, that's typical. Uh, what they, you know, we had 100 communities, 100 townships passing these ordinances, essentially confronting sludge and factory farm corporations across the state. What was the legislature's response? Well, instead of supporting the authority and ability of those township governments to take on those corporations, the legislature set about adopting legislation that would strip away ordinance-making power from them. And under Governor Rendell's administration, just this uh, past six months, they were able to pass that into law, which now empowers the state attorney general to sue local communities to overturn ordinances that they adopt dealing with uh, corporate factory farms uh, specifically. Is, is that uh, unbelievable? So that hasn't come to court yet, though? Still uh, they are currently driving uh, several ordinances through the process of the attorney general, and then the attorney general will decide whether to sue them or not. But when we talk about a corporate state, uh, which is, you know, we used to talk about the slave state back prior to the Civil War, that, uh, you know, when the, when the slave called the sheriff, who would the sheriff come in and arrest? In other words, who had the power of the state behind them to use? That today we have a corporate state, which means there are buttons that are pushed and when the, the biggest agribusiness and sludge corporations literally in the world, we're talking about Cinegro and Hydropress Corporation and Waste Management and Tyson and Hatfield Foods and Smithfield, that when the biggest corporations in the world who essentially own parts of the Pennsylvania legislature, that when they push buttons, that's what happens. Uh, the heavy lifting is done by the state. And in this case, the preemption law that was adopted uh, was driven by those corporations specifically to, to smack those township communities down. And uh, so that's been the response in the legislature. So we're talking with uh, Thomas Lindsay from the Community Environment uh, Environmental Legal Defense Fund, that's CELDF.org, uh, about uh, issues in changing the way in which we approach environmental issues in, uh, in the U.S. by attacking their legal underpinnings. In particular, one uh, important linchpin of his efforts is uh, to attack the idea of corporations having the same uh, uh, rights as, a, as an individual under the Constitution. Uh, listeners are welcome to call us at 412-268-9728-268-WRCT uh, or send mail to bob at leftout.info. And just an example of how this moves out of the environmental field, because it is everything. It is it's permeated everything. The city of Santa Fe passed a living wage ordinance. Uh, about a year, uh, year, year and a half ago. And their living wage ordinance was different because usually when living wage ordinances are passed by municipalities or by cities, it only applies to governmental employees. Well, Santa Fe decided to go beyond that, and they passed a living wage ordinance that said every employee that works in the city of Santa Fe is guaranteed a living wage. What happened next was a Coca-Cola company sued, and they sued the municipality, the city, claiming that the living wage ordinance that was passed by Santa Fe 
violated the corporation's constitutional rights under the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment says that you can't have property taken without just compensation and applies only to, to natural persons. Well, the corporation came in saying that the living wage ordinance violated the corporation's Fifth Amendment rights because paying additional money to employees was a takings under the law. So here's a corporation using Bill of Rights constitutional protections originally intended only to be accorded to people, real natural living people, which is now accorded to property in the form of a corporation that it then uses to deny the rights of people to build the types of communities that they want. So that's it's not a just real environmental. That's outside they, of that field. Did they win that case? It sounds like a real stretch to me because it's not taking property. It's simply an, a rule saying how much you have to pay people. Well, that makes logic, uh, makes sense to me, but uh, the United States has a history, in fact, an 80-year history of striking down similar wage ordinances. The uh, district court, the local court, upheld the city of Santa Fe. It's now on appeal. But uh, there's a history of precedent, which is one of the buttons that the corporate boys hit, uh, and which is one of the reasons why they sought to be clothed in the Constitution, because it shields them from decision-making power by majorities and communities Hmm. to control the way they do their business. And even corporate records, I mean, minimal things, not really radical ordinances, but things that just wanted to look at corporate records and corporate compliance histories have been struck as violating proprietary information on behalf of the corporation under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. So we live in a world in which a small number of people, this corporate class, the folks that actually run and manage the corporations, are now clothed in a corporate form that has constitutional protections which are then used to deny our rights when we attempt to do things to build the type of world that we want. And so it's that legal structure that needs to be attacked. It needs to be moved. It needs to be transformed. Eventually that may mean rewriting the Constitution uh, light years ahead uh, because it's hard to see how this Constitution, which was written by 20% of the people that were people and written specifically to protect that 20% from the other 80%, Mm-hmm. Women, indentured servants, men without property, slaves, they weren't at the table writing the Constitution. Uh, we know who wrote the Constitution. It was to 20%, upper 20%, white men with property who sought to protect themselves from the 80, other 80%, or at least their property interests from that. That gave us the Commerce Clause, the Contracts Clause. Uh, it gave us a Constitution that shields property accumulations from votes of majorities. And that's how we've ended up in this place. So this brings a point, Richard. We got a question by electronic mail from a listener from uh, representing uh, goodworkspack.org. Uh, he asked a question which is uh, really addresses the point you're, uh, you're, you're making now. Uh, he actually has two, two parts to his question. One is, uh, the, I think, the obvious one, which is a commonly observed fact in Pennsylvania, that in rural Pennsylvania, people vote Republican. And the, the, uh, the questioner writes in to ask, so why are these people Republicans? I mean, what's the matter with rural Pennsylvania? And then the other uh, question he asked, which I think is uh, related, is that, you know, your idea of a democracy school sounds like a, an appealing idea and, in fact, questioning the very legal foundations of our society. But as a practical matter, isn't it a bit too radical? I mean, how could you expect people who are already just voting Republican, if I may paraphrase the listener's question, sure. uh, who are already voting Republican, how can you expect as a practical matter to, to get them to buy into ideas like this? Well, I don't think there's a buy-in that's happening. In fact, this started before we arrived on the scene. All we did was facilitate it. I, I think the labels don't work anymore. I think conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, in a way, they just don't work anymore, at least at the level that we operate at. Uh, people's identity in rural Pennsylvania is not necessarily the way that they cast their vote. And, in fact, the Republicans, supposedly, are all about local control. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's what Republicans are for, that's local a joke. control. So the question is, what happens when local control comes smack up against uh, corporate subsidized or corporate subsidized rights or corporate rights or those types of things that the federal, that the United States Republican Party holds dear? And in essence, it's creating a rift of sorts uh, between the grassroots movement on the ground and uh, other institutions, other entities that these folks are involved in. But, the, I mean, we talk all the time about the paradigm shift that has to happen if we're going to survive on this planet and build something sustainable in terms of economically and environmentally sustainable in the communities that we want. Yet we never start to examine the core legal principles and the structure that goes into that paradigm shift. And it's got to start somewhere. It's got to be done. And in this case, it's being done with the folks that you would least think would do it, which is the folks in rural Pennsylvania 
you know, we work with some township supervisors that are illiterate. And I got to tell you, I've been in some township meetings where I can't have that conversation that we had in those one-room schoolhouses or salt sheds with any of my peers because people were coming to the meeting with the Declaration of Independence tucked in their back pocket of their jeans uh, or wanting to talk about the Pennsylvania Constitution, how it says people are the source of all governing authority, yet somehow these decisions are taken out of our hands by the invisible hand and by the legal structure of the marketplace uh, for community majorities to decide. And so I think we, we really do a disservice when we start to discard people based on, on their votes or how they're registered to vote, uh, because I think uh, this, uh, this movement begins and ends with people who are physically impacted by these types of projects. And most folks in rural Pennsylvania are the folks mm-hmm. that are being physically yeah. impacted by the siting of these projects. As for the democracy school, you know, the radical nature of the democracy school, you know, I guess I don't look any further than the fact that uh, these folks in rural Pennsylvania, who are the folks with the John Deere hats and the, the big boots, are the folks that are driving this thing. Uh, it's, it's certainly not yeah, us. All we're doing is facilitating the process and then helping to expand it out to other places. So we have a caller. Uh, we only have a few minutes remaining in the hour. Uh, Yolanda, please go ahead. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about this new act uh, with the utility companies, how they affect uh, Pittsburgh and the surrounding area, because it supposedly benefits uh, taxes for the utility companies, and how it, uh, because of the uh, increases that are going to be going on, how does that impact a consumer? Thanks. I really don't know because that's not my area of expertise, but I guess there's a parallel to the high-speed uh, providing wireless and high-speed Internet by municipalities uh, to uh, to their residents. And the hubbub that started about legislatures uh, passing laws to strip the authority of municipalities to provide those services. Right. Yeah. And Philadelphia wanted to do that, and they tried to, to prevent it. I don't know whether they were successful or, or not. But Thomas, do you know? Uh, I, d- I don't know what the outcome of that was, but mm-hmm. I do remember reading in USA Today a uh, editorial by the CEO of Verizon uh, who essentially said that people were too stupid to make decisions like that, and that was better left up to the telecommunications companies to be paid to come in to do those services rather than a municipality contracting to provide them for free to their residents. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's the same. See, the thing is, the example of a, of a utility we have or a service for the city is the libraries. Libraries in Pittsburgh are really popular, and that's something that was established a hundred years ago or more, and uh, people are used to it. But if that were, if you tried to establish a library today, you would get blocked at every turn, wouldn't you? This is the kind of thing that we want to do with the, the wireless in, in Philadelphia or anywhere else, for that matter. Um, Wait, final word on that? Uh, I, I think that's true. I think uh, this process is now about. Uh, restricting information flow to people. Uh, I think it's about corporatization of media. I think it's about corporatization of the food supply. I think it's corporatization of waste management. And the question is, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to fix it? And can we fix it without going back and remaking, uh, like Thomas Jefferson saw in every generation, remaking the fundamental rules under which we govern ourselves? And I don't think there's a, there's a way to do that short of that. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking with uh, Thomas Lindsay from the Community Environment Legal Defense Fund, which is CELDF.org. And you're welcome to visit their website to have to get more information about their activities. And we thank very much Thomas Lindsay for appearing on Left Out today. Uh, that completes our show for this week. Thank you to Matt Tubes for producing. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening. You're listening to a production of WRCT Public Affairs. The opinions contained within are solely those of the participants. Questions and comments can be addressed to WRCT Pittsburgh, 5000 Forbes Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, or call 621-0728.